As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Well, hello again, and welcome back. I'm Nurse Mo, and this is the Straight A Nursing Podcast, where I share nursing concepts and tips on how to thrive in school and at the bedside. Before we dive into today's episode, of course, let's take a moment for our listener shout out. And this one goes out to Mindy, who says this. She says, Nurse Mo is hands down my secret weapon in nursing school. I used her Crucial Concepts boot camp before I started. I listen to the Straight A Nursing podcast all the time, and now I have the study sesh. I cannot recommend her enough. The way she breaks down concepts just makes it so easy to understand. No matter where you are in your nursing journey, this podcast will benefit you whether it be just to freshen up on your knowledge or to finally grasp the concept of something you've been struggling with. Thank you, Nurse Mo. Well, Mindy, I want to say thank you right back at you. I totally appreciate the time that you took to submit that. And I'm so, so thrilled that the podcast and boot camp and study sesh are helping you feel more confident in school. Okay, so let's dive in to today's episode. And what we're talking about today is knowing how to recognize when your patient is in respiratory trouble and is likely going to need intubation. So this is definitely a key skill that you will use regularly as a nurse. And if you're saying, well, I have no interest in working in the ED or in the ICU, that is not the only place where you will encounter patients who are in trouble. Anybody, anywhere, in any type of facility, area of the hospital, what have you, can go into respiratory distress. So first, we're going to talk about kind of what a normal respiratory finding looks like, and then we'll dive into some general signs of respiratory compromise. Okay, you ready? Now, the reason we want to first talk about the normals is because if you have a super solid understanding of what you should be seeing in your patients, it's a lot easier to notice when things are abnormal. So I always want you to focus on a lot of your learning on understanding what a normal assessment finding is or what a normal assessment would look like, what a patient who's doing just fine would look like, sound like, act like, etc. So when we're looking at their respiratory status, they're going to have a rate between 12 to 20-ish times per minute. Now you will see some variation on this. It might say 10 to 20. Your school might teach you 10 to 20. They might teach you 12 to 22. Just know that 12 to 20-ish is kind of that normal, okay? They will also have no accessory muscle use. So when you 
look at their neck and their chest. You're not seeing them use extra muscles in order to breathe. Think about what you probably look like right now, okay? You're probably not huffing and puffing unless you're listening to me while you're out jogging or something. And if you are, good job. But otherwise, no accessory muscle use. They'll have an O2 saturation. That's technically what you'll learn in school is above 90% on room air is normal. In the clinical setting, we want our patients to be a little higher than that. So for instance, after surgery, we can send our patients out as long as they're above 92% on room air. Other parts of the hospital, With a patient who's not having any kind of respiratory issues at all, you expect to see 95 or higher on room air. So if you went and took your oxygen saturation level right now, okay, raise your hand if you bought one of those devices. When COVID first hit, I have one in my bedside table and every now and then I pull it out and check and I'm always like 99% or higher. So you always expect to see that. In general, 95 or higher, but technically 90 and higher is what's considered normal. You also have an ABG that's within normal limits if you are taking that arterial blood gas sample from your patient and doing that analysis. That would be normal. And then if you're doing that ABG, you can calculate the PF ratio, and that's going to be above 300 in somebody who's not having any respiratory issues. And when you listen to their lungs, the lungs are nice and clear, and they are protecting their airway like a total boss. Okay, so now you're probably thinking, wait a minute, Nurse Mo, what is a PF ratio? I don't know if we've ever talked about this before, so let me just tell you very briefly what that is. So the PF ratio is a really quick calculation that you can do to help you determine if the patient has ARDS or is in acute respiratory distress syndrome. So you get these numbers by looking at your arterial blood gas. So you get the PAO2 from that. And then you get the FiO2 on the ventilator or from whatever oxygen delivery device you're using. And you take those two numbers and you do a quick little calculation. So to do the calculation, let's say your PaO2 is 83 and your patient is on a ventilator at 45% FiO2. So you need to convert your FiO2 into a decimal. So in this case, it is 0.45. Then you simply divide the PaO2 by the FiO2. So that would be 83 divided by 0.45 gets us a number of 184. So anything less than 300 is indicative of ARDS, okay? So we have different levels of ARDS. I talk about that further in other episodes. I'm not going to bog you down with that, but that's just a quick little overview, the PF ratio. You're looking at the PaO2 and comparing that against the FiO2. And in a healthy person with no issues, it's going to be above 300. And then one other thing that I forgot to mention would be if you had a chest x-ray available to look at or any chest imaging, it would, of course, be normal. Okay, so now that we've taken a little review over what's considered normal, now let's dive into the abnormal things, 
things that you would see in your patient who has respiratory compromise or is in respiratory distress. So we talked a bit earlier about respiratory rate, that kind of 12 to 20 range. So an increased respiratory rate could be an indicator that your patient is in respiratory distress. Now, this isn't going to be just as easy as stating a number. Obviously, the number 26 is tachypnea. That's higher than 12 to 20, correct? But are they in respiratory distress? You're going to be looking at how that respiratory rate correlates with other factors. So it's kind of part of the whole picture. You'll look at their O2 saturation. You'll look at their work of breathing. Those are kind of the two main ones. So if I've got a patient whose respiratory rate is going up and their oxygen saturation level is lower than I expect it to be or it's trending down and they're working to breathe, I'm thinking even if they're not in full-on respiratory distress now, they're heading in the wrong direction, right? So hopefully we catch things really early before we get to the point where the patient does require intubation. So maybe we can do something to intervene more quickly Maybe the patient has fluid volume overload and we can talk to the doctor about their eyes and O's and their drastic increase in their weight today and their adventitious lung sounds and what we're seeing with their rate and their O2 sat and their work of breathing. And they may order a diuretic and maybe some BiPAP and we could use that combination. And then the patient, we get the fluid off and the patient feels and breathes a lot better. So when we're looking at the respiratory rate, again, it's not just the number, but an increased and sustained tachypnea could be an ominous sign. So I'm looking at a patient who's got a respiratory rate in the 30s, in the 40s. Generally, that's a sign that some kind of intervention needs to be done. And it's probably not going to be just as simple as giving a diuretic because think about it. Do you imagine it takes a lot of energy to breathe 36 times a minute, 44 times a minute, 50 times a minute? And yes, I've seen all of these things. Yeah, it does. That patient's going to have some work of breathing. They're going to get tired. And what do you think happens when they're chugging along, breathing 46 times a minute, and they tire out? then they are going to go down and they're going to go down quickly. The only thing keeping their oxygen saturation level where it is, is that increased rate. When they get tired and can't sustain that rate anymore, oh boy, not good. Bad things are definitely going to happen. So when you have a patient with that really high respiratory rate, sometimes the MD will opt to use BiPAP in hopes that they don't need to be intubated. And other times the patient may just go straight to getting intubated. Again, it's going to depend on their whole picture, their vital signs, their level of consciousness, what else is going on with them? How does their chest x-ray look? How did their lungs sound? What is their work of breathing? What is their PaO2? What is their PaCO2? We're gonna get a blood gas on this individual, most likely. Okay, so that is respiratory rate. Now let's look at the other side of that, a decreased respiratory rate. If the patient is breathing, say, eight times a minute, but their 
oxygen levels okay, their CO2 is okay, then they may not really need much intervention. Uh, They may not need any intervention. Maybe they're just asleep and that's just how they breathe. A lot of times after surgery, when I get patients after surgery, they'll be breathing eight times a minute, nine times a minute. That's definitely on that slower end. And they're doing okay. They might have a couple liters oxygen on, but I'm watching them very carefully and they're doing okay. Now, what you want to make sure doesn't happen with a sustained lower respiratory rate is a buildup of CO2, okay? So if your patient has a decreased respiratory rate and their level of consciousness is also very low, I'm going to be suspicious that they have an elevated CO2 or maybe that they've had too much opioid or something like that. So you're always kind of looking at the whole picture. What is going on with this patient in the entire clinical scenario. So sometimes for a decreased respiratory rate, a patient will get BiPAP and we'll see how that works and see what happens. We'll also try to determine why are they breathing so slow? If they're not just asleep, (laughs) then did they have too much opioid? Are they on a PCA? Can we pull back on the PCA? Do they need a reversal agent? All those types of things. Now, if the patient's rate is really, really low, and maybe you don't have BiPAP, or maybe that's not going to help this individual, then another option is to breathe manually for them with a BVM, a bag valve mask. A lot of times patients will have too many opioids, they're not breathing effectively, grab that BVM, assisted ventilations for that patient, and you're doing that while your friend is going to get the reversal agent. So A lot of times with decreased rate, we could maybe hold off on intubation, but maybe they'll still need it. If the patient is breathing six times a minute, their O2 is low and or their CO2 is high, we're probably going to go a little more aggressively. But again, that would be up to the physician. All right, we talked about worker breathing a moment ago. Let's talk about that a little bit more here. So increased work of breathing occurs when the patient is basically really hungry for air. And they're using those accessory muscles to try to just get as much air in as possible. So watch their muscles of the neck, watch their chest, watch their belly. And if these are all in high gear, note that the patient is eventually going to get tired, just like if their rate is really high. And what do you think is going to happen when they get exhausted? Things are going to turn bad and they're going to turn bad very, very quickly. So you need to hop on this quick. And to that end, if you ever hear a patient telling you they're having trouble breathing, that they're saying, I'm having to work really hard to breathe or I'm getting tired, you need to be alerting somebody absolutely immediately. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the key vital sign we're looking at with respiratory, and that's going to be their oxygen saturation level. Now, again, you'll hear in school most likely that normal is 90% and above, but let's say your patient's been 98% on room air all day, okay, just like me with my little pulse oximeter probe thing that's in my bedside table, right? I'm always like 98, 99, or 100%. What if all of a sudden I'm 91%? Am I not concerned because that's, quote, normal? No, I'm going to be concerned because that's a vast different from my normal, from my baseline. So when you're looking at vital signs, it's not just looking at the number in isolation. You're looking at the trend 
for that patient. So if you've got a patient who's been 98% on room air all day, and now they're suddenly 91%, something has changed. Something has happened. I'm not saying they're going to get intubated for that, but something in their status is clearly different, and you need to go figure it out. So chances are it might be something really simple, like you could try some coughing and deep breathing to start. And a lot of times that helps tremendously. You want to get out your stethoscope, listen to their lungs. Do they have wet or adventitious lung sounds, those coarse lung sounds? Check for other problems. Did they possibly aspirate? Did they get over sedated? Did they get too much of their morphine infusion from their PCA? Whatever it is, see if you can figure out the underlying cause. So do a little detective work and you may be able to solve this mystery before it even becomes a big issue. Now, let's say you have them cough and deep breathe. You reposition them so they're sitting up nice and tall with good lung expansion. You hand them in the incentive spirometer. They use that and it doesn't really help. You're going to then be going up your level of What's the word I'm looking for? Your level of interventions, right? We always start with the least invasive and go to more invasive. So then, you know, the next thing would be to apply some oxygen. And even though oxygen is considered a medication and you need an order, in most nursing units, you have a standing order to keep oxygen levels above a certain percentage. And if it's below that, then you can apply oxygen. So applying some oxygen and then making sure that you reassess, right? Did it help? Did the O2 sats go up? But then you can't just go on about your merry day and forget about it. Let's say you put on three liters nasal cannula and the sat comes up to 95%. Well, that's a lot better, right? Are you just going to be like, okay, cool. See you later, Bob. You're doing great. Okay, you are going to tell Poppy he's doing better. You want him to feel better, but you're also going to let the MD know that there's been a change in their patient. Okay. All right. Now let's talk a little bit about level of consciousness. If your patient becomes very somnolent or is unarousable, checking an ABG is always a really good idea, especially if you have a high index of suspicion that they could have hypercapnia, that elevated CO2. This is a very common cause of somnolence. And what we do for this is usually give the patient or put the patient on BiPAP. So what you see with this a lot is your patients with a COPD exacerbation. And I saw this so many times when I was working in the ICU, like so many times. So a patient who has a COPD exacerbation is not going to feel very good. They're going to have a low oxygen level, okay, because there's some kind of something's going on with their lungs. A lot of times your patient with their COPD exacerbation may have a little bit of an infectious process going on or something like that, and they're just not compensating as well. So their oxygen levels will be low. Well, when oxygen levels get low, people get pretty squirrely, okay? They get restless, they get confused, they get agitated. This is the patient that is just pulling his gown off all the time, taking the leads off if he's in a monitored unit with leads on the chest, maybe trying to like get out of bed a little bit, um, not super cooperative, agitated, anxious, etc. This patient will also often want to take their oxygen off and not want to wear their oxygen because they're just not 
the brain's not getting perfused. And so they're just not 100% with the program. It's not their fault, okay? But what I would see happen A10 is there would be a patient in the ICU, a COPD exacerbation, squirrely as all get out, you know, all night long, just, you know, really working hard to keep the oxygen on Bob to had to put his gown back on four times. He pulled out an IV like Bob really had a rough night. And then morning comes and finally he's asleep. Oh, thank goodness. Please do not wake him. If you go in there and you wake up, Bob, we are going to have words. But guess what? Bob's not actually asleep. Bob's CO2 level has risen, and now he's hypercapnic. So if I did go in there and try to wake up Bob, Bob probably wouldn't be very rousable. He may even be obtunded. So if you've got a patient that's been squirrely for a long time, and you know their oxygen level's been low because you've been trying to give them oxygen, and maybe they've been trying to take it off and just doing all those things that I described. And then they appear to be just sleeping like a baby. Okay, this is a great time to get that oxygen on there because they're not going to keep taking it off. But you need to try to wake them up because if their CO2 level is high, this can be very dangerous for the patient. So you need to try to wake them up. And if they wake up easily, you can say, I'm so sorry, Bob. I know you're tired. You, you can get back to sleep now. But if they don't, you've got issues that need to be addressed. And again, what we usually do for this hypercapnia situation, especially, you know, with a little bit of low O2 is BiPAP. If the O2 is significantly low, then they may just go straight to intubation. But the trend is to try to avoid intubation as much as we can. And BiPAP can be a really great opportunity to avoid that in a lot of cases. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask them all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? Well, we hear you and we have been there too. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. Who are we? I'm Dr. Jess Steyer, a public health scientist and also co-host of the Unbiased Science Podcast. Every day, I'll chat with one or both of your new pediatrician besties, Dr. Dina DiMaggio, a general pediatrician, and Dr. Anthony Porto, a pediatric gastroenterologist. We'll talk about all the things related to our kids' health, from dealing with a colicky infant to navigating puberty in the teenage years. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, now live on all podcast platforms. Okay, now, we also talked about that PF ratio. If it's too low, that could indicate that the patient has a very serious problem, acute respiratory distress syndrome. So if you run an ABG on your patient, and it's probably going to be abnormal in all kinds of ways, but if you also do that quick PF ratio calculation, you can just let the MD know, oh, by the way, his PF ratio is 125. That would be pretty darn bad. So you would just let them know that that would factor into their decision of what the patient needs. And then a little bit about their lung sounds. So adventitious lung sounds could indicate a need for intubation. It definitely indicates a need for some kind of intervention. A few crackles can often be dealt with by having the patient cough and take deep breaths and use the incentive spirometer. Maybe they need some Lasix if they have extra fluid in there. But if the patient's lungs are really, really wet, and I have heard some 
lungs that sound like a washing machine, and I'm not exaggerating. If the lungs sound really, really wet and their O2 sats aren't dropping and their worker breathing is increasing and their rate is going up, then this patient's probably headed towards respiratory failure and they're going to need more aggressive intervention. And then the other factor for a patient that would need serious respiratory intervention is the patient who cannot protect their airway. So this occurs when your patient has a very decreased level of consciousness. You've heard probably the phrase, or maybe you haven't, but the phrase less than eight intubate. So that would be a Glasgow coma scale score of less than eight typically means the patient may not be able to protect their airway. So they'll get intubated for airway protection. If the patient has had some kind of neurological insult, maybe they've had a stroke or something is going on where they're just not neurologically intact, they may need intubation for airway protection. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with their lungs nothing wrong with their respiratory rate, nothing wrong with their work of breathing. It's just to protect their airway from aspiration. Okay, so we've identified our patients that that is in trouble and we've talked to the physician, the respiratory therapist is there and the doctor's like, yeah, we're gonna intubate this patient right now. This happened all the time in the ICU where I worked. So the first thing you want to do, you know, make sure the team is ready. If respiratory therapy isn't there, you want to make sure they know because they're going to play a key role in this. Tell your charge nurse that they know what's going on. They can maybe keep an eye on your other patient because you're going to be busy with this patient for a bit. And probably you need a couple more nurses in there to help. Okay. So as the nurse, you're going to be monitoring the patient's vital signs. You're going to be pulling meds for the physician if they're not already in a little kit. Sometimes there'll be a like a toolbox, almost looks like a fishing tackle box or something like that with the drugs and everything they need in it. Sometimes you'll have to go to the Pixis to get the medications. And if the patient is conscious, and this can happen, a patient will be awake and need to be emergently intubated, then they're going to need medications to relax the patient so that this intubation can happen. Otherwise, they're going to gag, they're going to fight the the whole process. So they need medications, and we call these RSI, Rapid Sequence Intubation Medications. So again, these are going to be medications that the patient, the muscles relax, the patient relaxes, so the doctor can basically get that ET tube down into their trachea. If the patient is really compromised and they don't have any response to noxious stimuli, you may not need any RSI medications, but always ask the physician, do you want me to get any medications or what medications do you want me to get? Find out what they need so that you can run over to the bedroom and get those. Note that the MD will definitely have to write an order for these and follow your facility's protocol for pulling those medications, okay? Now, if the patient has hyperkalemia, so if the doctor asks you what's his K level or what's his potassium level, and you're thinking, why are we talking about this right now? (laughs) Bob's having trouble breathing. Well, the reason for that is because one of the medications commonly used for rapid sequence intubation is succinylcholine. And succinylcholine can cause a transient 
hyperkalemia. So if the patient has a normal potassium level, it'll raise it, but it's not going to raise it enough to be a big deal. But if they have a high potassium level already and we give them succinylcholine, it's going to go even higher for a little bit. And that could be a problem. So if they don't ask you what their K level is, and you know that Bob has hyperkalemia, make sure they know what the potassium level is. They may choose a different paralytic drug instead of succinylcholine, okay? Now, the next thing you want to do is make sure someone has prepared a liter bolus of normal saline. I'm not saying you're giving this liter bolus of normal saline, but in my experience, if I suspect that a patient is going to get hypotensive because the medications we use for rapid sequence intubation cause hypotension and the change to positive pressure ventilation can cause hypotension due to decreased venous return, then I want to have that liter bolus ready just in case I need it. I'm not going to give it without the doctor's order, but if the doctor says give him a fluid bolus, all I want to do is turn it on rather than have to go run and grab it. So anytime I had a patient who was going to get RSI, rapid sequence intubation, I would get the meds and get a fluid bolus ready. Most of the time we needed that fluid bolus, okay? Now, if the patient is in a really, really, really bad way, this could be a bit chaotic, but hopefully everybody has a clear role and everybody's doing their assigned job and it goes smoothly. So respiratory therapy will be there bagging the patient while the physician is at the head of the bed or the nurse practitioner, whoever is doing the intubation, while that person is at the head of the bed getting situated. Now, you want to make sure that you remove the headboard from the bed and that you know how to do that and put it somewhere out of the way. That way, the physician can get back there and really get right behind the patient's head and get into position to intubate. Then there will be another respiratory therapist typically there also to hand the doctor all that necessary intubation equipment as this process um, continues. There will be a nurse pushing the medications and another watching the monitor and then you making sure everything goes according to plan and as it should. Now, a note about the rapid sequence intubation medications, it will depend on your facility policy and maybe even your state's scope of practice if you as the nurse can push those medications. So make sure you know the policy before you do anything that you're not supposed to do, okay? At the facility where I work, the policy is that if the patient is actively being intubated, by the physician, the nurse can push the medications, okay? Now, those medications are often succinylcholine and propofol. Can I push propofol if the patient is just getting sedated for colonoscopy? No, I cannot. So make sure that you know your facility and even your state's practice act, nurse practice act, and scope of practice, okay? All right, so I just want to say a quick word about that. You may or may not be giving those powerful medications is what I'm trying to say. Okay, and then now your patient's intubated. You did it. You got Bob intubated. He can finally get the oxygen he needs get, you know, any extra CO2 out of there, whatever it is, why ever he was being intubated. 
But now we've got all kinds of things that we need to do to take care of a patient after they've been intubated. So right away, you want to get an order for sedation and pain management. When those RSI drugs wear off, you don't want the patient getting really agitated and pulling their ET tube. Note, however, there has been a big move away from over-sedating patients and over, you know, um, using things like fentanyl or midazolam to sedate our patients or propofol. But you want to have a plan in case the patient wakes up and goes absolutely ballistic because they very well might. So again, common drugs, propofol, fentanyl, those would be done as continuous infusion so that it's you want to have that ready and hanging and keyed into the pump so that it's ready to go when the patient needs it if this is what the MD decides the patient needs, okay? Again, we don't want to over-sedate our patients just because someone's on a ventilator doesn't mean they're going to be completely knocked out. That is actually really bad for patients, but you also don't want them so agitated that they're fighting the ventilator and then the ventilator is not going to be that helpful for them. And we also don't want them so agitated that they're pulling out their ET tube, pulling out their lines, trying to get out of bed, doing all those things that could be dangerous for them. So simply ask the MD, what do you want to do about sedation and comfort and see what they say. If they say, I don't want to sedate this patient or I don't want anything, you could advocate for something like Presidex, dexmedetomidine. I hope I said that right. Somebody made a comment on my Apple podcast that I don't pronounce things very well. And it is something, honestly, that I work really hard at and especially drug names. So that was some feedback that I had to take with a lot of grace and realize, yeah, I could probably be even more aware of it. It is something I work really hard at. But you know what? I'm going to work even harder at it. And I really hope I said that drug name correctly. But that medication is one that it will make the patient more calm. It will be sedating for the patient, but it's not going to also decrease their respiratory drive. So one of the great things about Presidex is that you can have a patient who is perfectly sedated. They can wake up when you need them to wake up, but they're not also pulling at things or fighting the ventilator. And then when you need to go and do a spontaneous breathing trial, which is part of their assessment for is the patient ready to be weaned off the ventilator, they can still do really well at that spontaneous breathing trial because we're not knocking out their respiratory drive with a bunch of fentanyl. Okay, so Presidex is really, really great. All right, so then some other things that we want to do for our patients. So we're, we've addressed sedation and comfort. We also want to talk to the MD about restraints if we think that they're going to be needed. It really depends on how agitated the patient is, if they'll wake up and follow commands. A lot of times patients will be on the ventilator and they're with it. They'll follow commands. They won't grab at their tube. They're just chilling and they're just fine. And other times patients are really disoriented, really confused, really aren't tolerating it very well and are just constantly reaching for it. So it will depend on a patient by patient basis if restraints are needed. So initially, your patient is going to be on 100% FiO2, 
okay? And we're not going to leave them at 100% FiO2. What's going to happen is the respiratory therapist or whoever at your facility does this is going to be doing arterial blood gases and weaning down that oxygen on the ventilator and really dialing in the appropriate oxygen levels for the patient. So even initially, they may start out on 100% FiO2 and the MD may say, okay, let's put him on 60% FiO2 or whatever it is. But very initially 100 and then down to what we hope to be their maintenance FiO2 for their ventilator settings. And there's a whole bunch of other ventilator settings that I'm not going to get into right now. But the point I want to make here is that you're always, as soon as that patient is intubated, you're working on getting them off that ventilator, okay? So that's where those spontaneous breathing trials come into play. And other things like sedation holidays, which go along with the spontaneous breathing trial. If your patient is sedated, we're going to pull back on that sedation so that they wake up and we see how well they breathe on their own. The tube is still in place, but we want them to do the work of the breathing and just always working toward that weaning of the ventilator. We also want to prevent ventilator-acquired pneumonia. This is a big part of your job as the nurse taking care of a patient who is intubated. So there are bundles. Uh, bundles are interventions that, when all done together, have greater and improved outcomes for patients. So when we look at the VAP ventilator-acquired pneumonia bundle. You're going to be doing things like keeping the head of bed up at 30 degrees. I think the, the protocol may say 30 to 45. 45 degrees, then you tend to get into more pressure injury. So 30 degrees kind of looks to be that sweet spot. So head of bed about 30 degrees, maybe a little higher. Oral care every two to four hours, and this will depend on what you're using to perform that oral care and your hospital policy. So in my facility, using chlorhexidine for oral care means we do it every four hours or more often, of course, as the patient needs it. Before we started using the chlorhexidine, we had to do it every two hours at a minimum. So this was actually one policy change, one, one practice change that reduced our workload. That never happens, by the way. You will be suctioning secretions off the ET. ET cuff so that they don't just sit there and hang out and become a breeding ground for bacteria. And then there's a couple other ones, peptic ulcer disease prophylaxis. It doesn't sound like it's related to ventilator-acquired pneumonia, but apparently it is directly related to patient outcomes. So that would be something like a proton pump inhibitor or an H2 receptor blocker. And then DVD prophylaxis, it's not directly related to ventilator-acquired pneumonia, but it is a huge factor in patient outcomes. So you'll see that as part of the VAP bundle as well. And again, another component of that VAP bundle is that daily sedation holiday or sedation vacation and assessment for readiness to extubate. We want to always get the ventilator off as soon as we possibly can. Okay, so I hope this helps you understand why a patient might get intubated and how you're going to take care of them afterwards. 
I talked briefly about respiratory assessment and what a normal respiratory assessment looks like at the beginning of this episode, but I've actually got an entire really in-depth episode about conducting a respiratory assessment if you want to go a little deeper into that, and that is episode 237. So thank you so much for spending your free time or your exercise time or your laundry folding time or whatever it is, your commute time with me today. And I'll see you back here next week for more of the same. See you then. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing. At a time when change is constant, and we are pulled in far too many directions. We need a way to stay present to life and to increase our ability to remain calm, think clearly, and maintain our well-being. Many studies indicate mindfulness improves our mental, emotional, and physical health. On a Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee, you can learn how to practice mindfulness and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health and mindfulness. The world truly can be a better place. It all starts with a mindful moment.